Man, I don't know about you guys, but this Thanksgiving week, let's, uh, let's give praise to the Lord for what Tim Johnson and the worship team is doing here, and what God's doing through them. Man. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for them. Uh, I'm looking around for Tommy Larison, Tim Dix, my other counterpart student guys working with college students and middle school students. And uh, man, it is just a blessing to be a part of such a great staff with such a great group of people around us. I'm grateful for our high school students out there. Where are my high school students at? Woo! That, see, they're, they're grateful too. Look at that. See, it's great. Hey, if you got your Bibles with you, I want to go ahead and ask you to open up to Psalms chapter 51. Psalms chapter 51. Uh, so you kind of be thumbing through. If you're new to studying scripture, you can kind of open up your Bible to like the middle or turn it on and just swipe along until you get about the middle of it. Right around Psalm 51 is where we're going to land today. Uh, as you begin to look for that, I kind of want to open up with a little story about some things that uh, have happened in my life before. I didn't always, I've been here about five years. I haven't um, always served in this church. I started out serving in a, uh, in a little church. One of those churches where the choir stays behind you uh, the whole time the pastor's up there speaking. So, you know, every now and then you can turn around and say something to the choir and they both get real excited about it. And, um, you know, that was, that was one of my early churches. My kids were all little. Some of y'all get that later. It's okay. It's a choir, both of them. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, my kids were little, and we were in this church where uh, it was all Southern gospel stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's great. That was who they were. It was what they did. Um, and and so, so every Sunday, we had this thing where during the middle of the service, they'd ask everybody to stand up, and you'd like go around, you'd shake hands with people, you'd try to track down new people, do, 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 shake their hands. And while they did that, uh, the worship guy and the choir would sing a song called Friend of God. It's, it was just this old-timey, I'm a friend of of God kind of thing. And, and if, if you've been around church a while, you've probably heard it. Uh, if you've been around a long time, you've probably heard it. So anyway, but this was every Sunday, four years for every Sunday, they sang this song during, during we did, while we did this welcome time. And so my kids are little and they kind of pick up on stuff. And so we leave one night, Stacy and I go out uh, just to kind of have a night away. And one of our students comes to watch our three kids. And that's just a, that's a terrifying experience, by the way, when you have church people come and watch your children, um, because you never know what kids are going to do. And so there's always this, this, man, I hope they behave. And if they don't, I mean, do, do I discipline them when I get home? Do I like spank them while the babysitter watches? So they go home and tell their parents. I mean, what, what am I supposed what if they say something like horribly inappropriate that they heard on television, then they're going to think that I talk that way at home. And so, so it's just a really scary thing. But so we, we came home, we got a great report on two of our kids and, and, and the, the third one who shall rename nameless, um, because they're all in the room right now. The third one, uh, apparently, that you know, they, she, she, Katie was telling us, you know, we played some games, we watched some TV, you know, I gave them something to eat, and then at bedtime, I put them all to bed, and I tucked them all in, and, and, and you know, I went and I sat down, I was doing my homework, and I heard the door go, these little footsteps, and she turned around, she's like, you, third child who shall remain nameless, what are you doing out of bed right now? And, and the child, um, it's like, well, I, I got to go to the bathroom. So he will go to the bathroom. You, you know how kids do. And so she gets them all tucked in. Boop, 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 boop. You know, goes back. She's doing her homework. And then like two minutes later, you hear with the door again. And, you know, so there's another excuse. And then, then it happens again. And it happens a third time. By the fourth time it happens, Katie goes over and she's like, now, third child who child saw her name nameless you better get in your bed and stay in your bed or I'm going to tell your parents when they get home. And this third child, hands on hips, well, very flustered, looks at, shakes his finger, well, you're not a friend of God's. 
and then marches into their room. And so we get home, Katie's like, you're not going to believe what he said. And, and so, you know, Katie was a friend of God, just for anybody who's keeping notes. But... Listen, listen, it, but isn't, isn't that the way we all kind of do? You know, there's, there's a thing that you want in life. There's a thing that you want to do. There's something that you want to go. And sometimes it feels like rules or, or, or regulations or what we should do or what we shouldn't do kind of gets in the way. And so we all kind of have this natural desire within us to make some sort of excuse, some sort of reason, some sort of thing that makes it okay that we go off and do what we want to do. We look around at the people around us. We look around at the people at the office. We look around at the people at work. We look around at the people that we, we hang out with. We look around at the people at the stadium when we go to UCF games. We look around at the other people around. We see what they have, and we wish that we had it. And so we go and chase after stuff instead of chasing after Jesus. We go chase after our desires. We have this thing within us that causes us to want what we want, and we really don't care what it costs anybody else because if they get our way, it's their fault. And, and there's, there's this weird thing about sin. That whenever we're confronted with sin, we become aware of sin in our lives. We typically have one of three responses to it. The first response is, is kind of just to hide it. You know, that, that first time that the door creaks open when the little kid's supposed to be in their room, they try to sneak out. It's, it's, you know, it's not that nobody notices. It's just they don't think anybody notices. And so they kind of hide what they're doing behind a wall or in the shadows. We kind of put it away where nobody can see. And our first instinct, the first thing we do with sin is we just try to hide it away and think nobody can tell. The, the, the other thing after, after that fails is we start to rationalize it. Well, you don't understand. You, you don't, I had to go to the bathroom or I needed a drink of water or there was something like, well, you don't understand the people I work with. You don't know the language they use. You don't understand the jokes they tell. You, you don't know what it takes for me to fit into the world that I have to fit into. Well, it's, 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 not, that, it's not that I'm really lying. I'm just not really fully disclosing all the details in the deal. It's not that, it's not that, it's not that I'm, 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 I'm lusting. I'm just, I'm just watching. You know, it's, it's not that it's this. It's just that you don't, you don't, you don't get me because you don't get me. You don't understand why I've got to do this. And so we rationalize the sin because it just, it's easier than facing it. And finally, finally, the third thing that we do is we kind of shift blame, don't we? We, we? we shift the blame on somebody else. We're like, well, no, it's not my fault. It's because, it's because of the way my parents did this, or it's, it's, because, it's because of the way this happened, or, you know, it's all because of, you know, the people that I hang out with or the place that I go. And, and if I can be really honest, listen, you don't hang out with the wrong people because they, you know, they, they don't make you, and, and we'll acknowledge, you you know, everybody, somebody's, can, can, somebody's like um, helped you along in, in our sinful way. There was somebody that kind of pushed you. There was somebody that enabled you. There was somebody that let you go there. But the fact is, you don't hang out with the wrong crowd because they make you do stuff. You are the wrong crowd. All right, we are all the wrong crowd. I'm not deprived of some experience or something. I'm simply depraved, and so are you. That, that's just the simple truth of the matter. Our desire is always towards our own thing, our own want, our own need. And when we are confronted with that sin and that reality in our lives, our first response is to hide. Our second is to rationalize it. And our third is to blame somebody else for it. And it's been happening that way since the beginning. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, you know, Adam and Eve have sinned and they become aware of their broken 
brokenness, they become aware of their nakedness, and in shame, they go and hide. If, if I can just get behind a bush, if I can just get behind a tree, nobody will ever know until God steps into the garden. And when God steps in, he calls out for them, and they're like, uh-oh, he found me. And so, so their first instinct is to hide, and then they come out, and they're like, well, well God, you, you, you know, we thought it was going to be, well, God, we thought, well, well, what about, and then finally God's like, Adam, what in the world happened? And the first thing he does, the very first words out of his mouth, it's the woman that you gave me. It's her fault, and it's your fault that I did this wrong. And he asks the woman, it's like, it's the snake. Listen, it's been happening this way since the beginning. Sin has an effect on us, and the effect is never, ever, ever what it ought to be. And so we're going to dive in to Psalms chapter 51 today, and we're going to look at what it is to have a gospel reaction, a gospel-centered response to repentance, a gospel-centered response to sin in repentance. What does it look like when we truly, truly understand repentance? Now, this Psalm 51 is a psalm that was written for the choir to sing and in in, in, in all of Israel, so this would be sung in front of a lot of people, but this song has a very specific context, a very specific thing that was going on. Now, if you've been in church a while, you've heard of it. There was a guy named King David. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. He wrote this one right after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, again, just to give you guys a little context what's going on here, David, very successful king of Israel, united the kingdom, lots of successes, and in his, in, as, he, as he got more and more successful, at some season, he just, at some point in time in his life, he just kind of wanted to take a break, and he did. And so he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Instead, he was chilling on the top of his palace looking out over all of his kingdom. And as he did, he's caught, he was, his eye was caught, his attention was captured by this young lady by the name of Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, one of the commanders in, in David's army. And, and, and I'm sure it was just like you and I, you know, he caught his eye, she caught his eye, then he wandered along, he found himself back in the same spot of the roof, and she caught his eye again. And, you know, maybe a couple laps later, he found himself just standing there gazing, and eventually he said, somebody tell me who that is. Now somebody go bring her to me. And that one night, that one decision, that one thing, that one act of adultery caused one of the greatest failures in David's life, one of the greatest sins that we remember from David's life. And so what happens in that moment, in that moment, they share this one night and then Bathsheba goes home and David thinks he's gotten away with it and everything's fine until she sends word that she's pregnant and her husband has been out at war. And so David, not knowing what to do, calls for Uriah to come home, thinking that, that, that if he can get Uriah to come home and spend the night at home, then nobody's going to ask any questions when she has a child. So everything will be fine. He'll be able to get away with it. So he brings Uriah in, makes up this excuse. He gives an explanation of what's going on on the front lines, and David tells him to go home and spend the night at home. But Uriah, so faithful to his king and so faithful to his men, refuses to go back to his own house. He sleeps outside on the steps of the palace. Far be it from me, he says, to go to the comfort of my wife when my men are sleeping in tents on the front line. And so David, now frustrated with, with, with Uriah, calls him in the next night and gets him just sloppy drunk as best as he can, and then tries to send him home. But again, he will not go. And so David, now with no other options left, calls Uriah in, gives him, the, gives him a paper, a scroll, sealed with the king's signet, and sends him back to the front line carrying his own execution order. And so as Uriah charges with the, with the troops to the front line, everyone else retreats in the heat of battle, leaving Uriah by himself where he would be killed. 
And then David, receiving word of Uriah's death, brings Bathsheba into his own home as a loving king, comforting the grieving widow of her husband. And all of this goes down in the early chapters of 2 Samuel. And about one year later, David is sitting on his throne, thinking he's gotten away with it. This is far from his memory. He's just doing his thing, going about his duties with the child that Bathsheba has had. And Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and tells him a story, a story of a rich man who has everything his heart could desire and a poor man who has one little lamb. But this little lamb was precious to the poor man. and He fed it from his own hand, and his children treated it like it was, a, it was their pet. This was a part of his family. And when the rich man had a, a company come in from out of town, instead of taking a lamb from all of his herds, he went to this poor man's house, and he stole his little lamb, slaughtering it to feed his company. And David, enraged at the story, declares that whoever did this shall be put to death. And Nathan looks back at him and says, David, you are that man. And David is immediately struck with the weight of his sin, a sin that no one knew about, just him, Bathsheba, maybe a couple people who helped orchestrate the whole thing. He thought he'd gotten away with it, but all of a sudden he comes face to face with the reality of what he's done. And David does the fourth thing, the other option when confronted with sin, and David simply repents. And so today in Psalm chapter 51, we're going to be looking, about, looking at what does a biblical repentance really look like. So look with me, if you will, Psalm chapter 51, verse 1. And David simply says this in the beginning. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now pause right there. Before we go any further, there's something to be seen in the way David begins this. See, most of us, and the danger of religion is that religion teaches us that there is something we must do. We have to come to church. We have to serve in small groups. We have to go here. We have to give our money. We have to go to this place. We have to do that thing. And so we begin to think that it is God's mercy plus my obedience or God's mercy plus my righteousness or God's mercy plus my money or God's mercy plus fill in the blank. Religion teaches that there is something we must do. But David understood as he comes to God in repentance that it is God's mercy plus nothing. He simply throws himself on the abundant mercy of God, hoping beyond hope that that will be enough, which leads to the question, is the mercy of God enough to cover our sin? And the answer is, yes, it is. The extension, the explanation, the, the working out of God's mercy is seen in his son lying on a cross, hanging on a cross. That is everything we will ever need for forgiveness of sin. The problem is you and I so oftentimes in church become so enamored, so happy, so numb with our own self-righteousness that we begin to think that God is loving to have us on his team when the truth is our sin, our shortcomings, our failures lead us to a place where the only hope that we have, the only thing we can hang our hat on, the only thing that matters at all in any significant way is the mercy of God and his mercy alone. 
And David simply starts out throwing himself on that mercy, hoping beyond hope that that mercy all by itself is enough. He doesn't rationalize his sin. He doesn't give five reasons why it was okay. Well, uh, God, if my wife had only done this, if, if this had only happened, if you had only given me this, God, if you had just provided or if I had just done, there was nothing but God's mercy. No excuse, no reason, no rationale, no blaming, simply God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, when everything else is figured out, the only thing we have is the mercy and the grace of God expressed in the cross of Jesus. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on. Look down with me at verse uh, Verse 3, he says, uh, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, David, David demonstrates something here. David, David, doesn't, David doesn't hide. David just simply comes to God broken as he is. Now, you and I, we have this idea that we need to clean up before we come to God. I have talked to, I don't know how many people who are like, you know, once I get better, once I get over this, once I get past this, the fact of the matter is God already knows that you're broken. God already knows that you have nothing to offer. God already knows that you are sinners. The problem is, for you and for me, is that sometimes we tend to forget that. David says, my transgressions are always before me. The problem for us is that our transgressions are sometimes before us, right? Now, we've come to this place in our culture where we, we, we kind of equate guilt with the presence of God. So we, we come into church and we listen to the music and we hear the thing and we raise our hands. Sometimes we cry when the worship is really good. And then somebody gets up here and they yell at us for 30 or 40 minutes. And after we've been yelled at for 30 or 40 minutes, we feel really bad about who we are. And then we think, oh, we came close to Jesus today because I feel bad about me. And then I go back out to do the same things I've done over and over and over and over again. And, and what we do is we, we just kind of look over things. You know, we, we look over the fact that, you know, we didn't tell quite the whole truth. We look over the fact that, that men, our, our jobs have become our idols. You know, I, I go out and I do what I do, and what I do defines me. My work defines me. It gives me purpose. It gives me a reason to get up every morning. And so when I go out and I do that, it makes me feel like I'm everything I ought to be. And because I'm providing that way, it's okay if I bend the rules. It's okay if I, it's okay if I don't play it quite straight. It's okay if, if I tell a little white lie. It's okay if I don't fully disclose what's going on. It's okay if I do what I have to do. Because at the end of the day, this makes me who I am. And being good at this is more important than being right with God. Ladies, we have, you have the same struggles. Sometimes maybe it's not your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's protecting the household. Maybe it's protecting your kids. Maybe it's seeing that, 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 that everything is okay and their behavior is all right. And I've, I've, I've set up a system where they're not going to get hurt and they're not going to be in danger and there's not going to be a problem and everybody's going to be okay because I've got every, all my little ducks in a row and everything's just fine. When all the while God is looking down on our families and saying, I did not give you what I've given you so that it would be a blessing to you. I've given you all that you have so it would be a blessing to the world. Arrows are no good until they leave the bow. And God has given us children. He's given us families. He's given us influence so that we may pull back that bow and shoot it so that the gospel may go forward for our kids. It is not an easy calling. It is a dangerous calling. It is not safe to follow him, but it's worth it. 
and we look at our lives and, and we put together everything that we have and we begin to lose sight and we make idols of our family. We make idols of our wealth. We make idols of our jobs. We make idols of our friends. We make idols of our reputation. All because we don't believe that what God has for us is enough. And David says, I, I'm, I'm aware of that now. I see that. Because my sin was not simply adultery. My sin was not simply murder. My sin was the fact that I never believed God was going to give me what I wanted anyway. And that was what led me to that rooftop. And that was what led me to that view. And that was what led me to the action. And that was what led me to adultery. And that was what led me to murder. And then David continues and he says, it's it's actually worse than you know. In verse 6, he says, uh, Verse 5, excuse me, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and my sin, in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he says, look, I, I, this, wasn't, this wasn't a mistake. <laughs> All right, you didn't catch me on a bad day. This, this, isn't, this isn't the kind of thing that, that you know, I, I, this, is, this is me. I was born this way. I, I, it's, not, it's not that I had a problem. It wasn't that I had a really bad day. It wasn't that I fell in a hole. This is the hole that I live in. I I was born with my own desires. I was born trying to rebel. I was born in sin, and there is nothing I can do to make it any different. You didn't catch me on a bad day. This is who I am, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. The problem for most of us, especially those of us who've been in church a long time, we don't believe that about ourselves anymore. We think we've gotten gooder. We think we've gotten better. We think we've gotten okay enough. But the truth of the matter is, we were born into transgression. We were born into our sin. We were born into our pride. We were born into our self-righteousness. We were born into our greed. You've never had to teach your children to lie, have you? Those of you parents in the room, did we ever have to teach our kids to lie? Or did they just figure that out on their own? I never sent my kids to sin camp. I just didn't. As a matter of fact, but you know, uh, so when, when we first started having kids, I was scared to death. Any parents with me? Scared to death when you had kids? All right, I've been screwing up other people's kids for a long time. I was now afraid I was going to mess up my own kids. All right? And, and so, so we went through this, this class at church that they offered to tell you how to raise your kids and all this stuff. And, you know, some of it was great, some of it was weird. And, and one of the things they told us was, was this thing called a sleep prop. Anybody, anybody been, been there with me, gone through the sleep prop thing? You know, you don't want to give your, your, your baby something that they're going to learn to, you know, I can only relax if this thing is here because that you want them to trust you because in trusting you, eventually they'll learn to trust Jesus. So you don't give them anything that kind of provides them comfort. So you kind of torture your kids when they're little. And th- so that's what we did. And, and so, so like the book said, the book said they shouldn't need a pacifier after nine months. After nine months, you know, that should be done. So with our first child, we were like Nazis. It was, it was like, Ninth, ninth month birthday, it's gone. All right? And the other thing the book said is, is like, you know, let them cry. It's okay if they cry a little bit. Don't let them cry more than 20 minutes. More than 20 minutes, something wrong, but let them cry. So, so with our first child, again, I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just saying this is how messed up I was, all right? So, so nine-month nine birthday with this first child of ours, we take him, we lie him down, and we like take the pacifier out of his mouth and like run down of the room, shut the door. And then Stacy and I are huddled on the other side of the door listening to him scream bloody murder for 19 minutes. 
before he falls asleep the whole time. We're like, can we go in? Can we go in? No, no, can't do it. Can't. Should we? No, can we? No, don't, no. I don't know. But listen, hey, listen, okay, take, take, take aside my, okay, take, take, take me off the table. But what is it? Why? Because he wanted what he wanted. And if I don't have it, I'm going to scream. That's what babies do, right? They do it when you take them to the store. I want ice cream. No. Ah! It's, it's what babies do. It's what teenagers do, right? I want it. The new iPhone. Can't have it. Ah! It's what senior adults do, right? <laughs> we just learned to, we, you learn to, you know, hide it a little better. We go home, we kick stuff, you know. What is that? Why, why do, we, we didn't learn to do that. That was just something that was always there because my pride tells me that I should have what I want, when I want it, and if I can't have it now, there's something wrong with the world. David says, that's me. That's me. My heart is broken. I was born this way. My transgression is ever in front of me. My sin is right there. I can't get away from it. God, all I have is your mercy. All, it, it's, it's not me, it's not you plus me, it's not you plus something, it's just you. And if you don't forgive me, if your mercy is not enough, thank God I am hopeless. And so we see in biblical repentance a full reliance on the grace of God, a complete reliance on the grace of God, a complete acknowledgement, not just that we sin, but a complete acknowledgement that the sin is not something that came upon me. It is me. I couldn't anymore take away the sin from my life than I could take the air from my lungs. It's part of who I am. The same pride that drives me to do well. The same pride that drives me to do something good. The same pride that pushes me to be all that I can be for Jesus is the same pride that causes me to do all kinds of things so people won't think I'm not all that I can be. And the same thing's true for you. The very things that cause us to do good are the very same things that cause us to sin. And so I can no more get rid of sin from me than I can just stop breathing and be okay. So biblical repentance is an acknowledgement that all I've got is the grace of God and that the grace of God is enough. But David doesn't stop there. Check this out. He continues. Verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, keep in mind, this is a, this is a hymn. This is a song. The choir would be up here singing this. David would be out in the crowd listening to it. Bathsheba would be somewhere in the room. And I think if I'm her, I'm probably sitting here thinking, um, excuse me, you killed my husband. You know, I, I, I didn't, you know, when the king sends somebody to your house in the middle of the night and says, hey, David wants to see you, you don't really say no. You know, I mean, we, we, you may have a weird picture of Bathsheba. You may think you know what she was like, but we don't really know. All we know is that the king, the guy who was in charge of everything, said, come here. And she's like, okay. What else is she going to do? And then David goes out and kills Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Uriah's troops who had to charge him to the front and then retreat. These were people he loved so much he refused to go home because he respected his men. 
The sin of David affected hundreds, maybe thousands of people. The messenger who took the scroll and gave it to him, gave it to Uriah, the guy who wrote down his death sentence and then gave it to a faithful man. The sin of David affected dozens, maybe hundreds of other people. It affected the child that they had with him and Bathsheba. It affected the kingdom of Israel, David's entire family. But he has the audacity to say against you and you alone have I sinned, speaking to God. And that repetition in Hebrew, it's you and you alone, you and you only, simply means passion. It it, it denotes the, the, the sincerity, the intensity that it's God and God alone. Him, you, Jesus, you are the one that I have sinned against. Because David understands something about sin that you and I often forget. Our sin may affect others, but our sin affects God far, far, far more deeply. I tell the students all the time that um, the severity of a crime is really only evident when, or really, really depends upon who the crime is committed against. So, so let's say, let's say, you know, I'm hanging out in the atrium after church, and people are milling around, and, uh, and, and a middle school student comes, comes walking by, and, and, uh, you know, I'm standing there with a bunch of people, and the middle school students come walking by, and I stick my foot out, and they pff, fall over. So Vincent Woodard just, boom, falls flat on his face. Everybody kind of laughs. Vincent gets up. We fist bump each other. It's like, yeah, funny, 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 and we move on. All right? So let me replay the scenario again. I'm standing there out in the atrium talking to a bunch of people, and a senior adult comes walking by. Like, <laughs> Mr. Uygens. I stick out my foot, trip, boom, broken hip. All right. Okay, one, it's not going to play out the same way. You know, there, there's one, she's, they're not going to get up and fist bump me. That's not gonna, nobody's going to really laugh. Everybody's going to look at me like, what is wrong with you? And that's probably going to end in a meeting in pastor's office. All right, just, just, just throwing that out there. All right, now, now let, let back it up and let's play it out again. I'm standing out in the atrium. A bunch of people are walking around. Pastor Mercer comes walking around the corner. I stick out my foot. Boom, falls down. Nobody laughs. That's not going to end in a meeting in pastor's office. That's going to end in me not having an office. All right? You all following me? All right, so, so let's play this again. We're standing out there, and for some reason, you know, Donald Trump comes walking around the corner. She likes this idea. (laughs) Stick my leg out. He trips. All of a sudden, I'm tackled by 45 Secret Service agents, and I'm going to spend serious jail time because I tripped somebody. All right, listen, is it it right to trip a middle schooler? No. Is it right to trip a senior adult? No. Is it right to trip Pastor Mercer? No. Is it right to trip the President of the United States? No. But one ends in a fist bump, and the other one ends in jail time. Because it all depends upon who it is you're offending. That little pet sin that you keep in a box that you think nobody knows about, and when you go home, you take it out, you play with it a little bit, and you put it back in the box, you put it, and your wife doesn't know, your kids don't know, your friends don't know, your coach doesn't know, your teachers at school don't know, your coworkers don't know, your boss doesn't know about, that little sin, is it affecting your kids? Yes. Is it affecting your wife? Absolutely. Is it affecting your job? 100%. Is it affecting your heart? Yes, it is. 
But that little sin that you take home and you play with and you think isn't a big deal and nobody knows about, that little sin put Jesus on a cross. And it caused God to allow his son to be hung on a sinner's cross, to have nails pierce his hands, pierce his feet, for a crown of thorns to be put on his head. All of heaven was bankrupt. All of heaven was broken when God's son died upon a cross because you had this tiny little sin that you wanted to take home, put in a box and play with it when nobody was watching. You did not sin against your kids. You are not sinning against your spouse. You are not even sinning against yourself. You are sinning against God Almighty who has paid every price, who has given the cross, who has given his son to die so that you could be free, not so that you could play with this little sin that you like to keep around. David looks at what he's done. He looks at Bathsheba. He looks at his child who died. He looks at Uriah and he says, Heavenly Father, against you and you alone have I sinned. You and I, we feel bad. We, we come under conviction or we come under guilt and we feel bad about our sin because we've been caught. We feel bad about our sin because we see that it's hurt somebody. We feel bad about our sin because there are consequences. We don't actually repent and we will never ever change until we stop feeling bad for the people we've hurt and begin to recognize that the sin that we carry hurts God more than it hurts anybody else. Until we begin to recognize that he is the one most offended by our sin, our sin will never become such a burden to us that we are willing to let it go. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And then he says in verse 6, Behold, behold, you delight in the truth of the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. With our kids, most of us, if you're parents in the room, with our kids, we get so upset about their behaviors, don't we? We, we don't want them to lie. We don't want them to cheat. We don't want them to steal. We don't want them to get caught. You know what I'm saying? We, 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 get, all, we get all tore up. We get all, all upset. I, I know as a parent, I do this. I know as, you know, I get to work with our high school students. And I know as I talk with parents, so many of them, they get so upset about the behaviors, the things that happen. Listen, listen, God, God is concerned more about your heart than he is about your behavior. And that's what David's recognizing here. You, 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 you look at me in the inward being. You share wisdom with me in my secret heart in places that nobody sees. This is where I'm changed. This is, this is what you're concerned about. You're concerned about my heart because you know if my heart is good, you know if my heart is for you, if you know if I love you with all of my heart, then these other things will take care of themselves. L- listen, when, when I talk to students about purity, I don't, it, it, look at the act of what they do, the act of being impure, is, is if they get there, the battle's already lost. Where the battle happens is who do they love? Because if you can change the heart, if you can get to somebody's heart, that is what God's concerned about. The reason that we sin, the reason that we sin is not because we like doing bad things. It's because in our heart of hearts, we don't believe that God wants what's best for us. We don't believe that God can come through when it really matters. We don't believe that God's desire for us is better than my desire for me. And until that changes in my heart, my behavior is going to forever be the same. I might feel bad about it. I might feel guilty. I might wish it was different. But until the heart changes, 
Nothing else changes. And then finally, verse 7, David says this, which can be a little confusing. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let your face, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast not away, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with, your, with a willing spirit. Listen, this is David's cry for the gospel. This is David recognizing that the sacrificial system is not enough. This is David recognizing that something's got to change in me. And what's always been isn't going to be enough. Now, if you take that word hyssop and you look up on Google what that means, it's going to tell you it's like this wispy little white flower thing. And it's not going to really mean much. But if you look throughout scripture and you find out why he mentions hyssop, back in the book of Exodus, when, 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 the, when, the, when the seven plagues or the plagues were coming on the nation of, of Egypt, God commanded the people of Israel to take hyssop. And, and, and sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and, and, and rub the hyssop in the blood and then wipe that across the doorpost of their house. And that would be a sign to the Spirit of God as it came by that this home was protected by the blood of the lamb. The hyssop in this passage is a foreshadowing of what would happen in the gospel, a foreshadowing of what would happen with Jesus on the cross where the blood of the lamb would wipe away the sin of the, of the believer, where the blood of the lamb would wipe out, take what was dark and make it wipe white as snow. Take what was broken and heal it. Take the relationship between God and man and mend it. When David mentions hyssop, what he is talking about, maybe without even knowing it, is that God had a plan all along to change the heart of man. Not by rules, not by regulations, but by the grace expressed in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Take the hyssop, wash it over my heart. Take what was dead and make it alive. Take what was broken and make it good. Take what Take what is dirty and make it white as snow. And then he says, let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones, the conviction that feels like you've crushed me on the inside, let them rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a new heart. Renew the right spirit within me and restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Check this out, church. Repentance, godly repentance, gospel-centered repentance always, always, always leads to a new heart. When we come to God and God alone, when we trust and put our hope in nothing but his mercy, his mercy and his grace will always lead to a new life, a new life in Jesus, a new heart heart, a new hope, a new desire. Repentance leads to new life. New life leads to worship because the heart cannot help but sing for the one who saves it. And worship will always lead to God's mission. Do this in me. Create a new heart in me. And then, and then, sinners will hear of your grace. So tonight, as we, this morning as we close, we, there, there, there is a response demanded by the gospel. There is a response demanded by this passage. And for some of us, that response is simply that we must come to God in repentance for the very first time. Maybe for you, maybe you've not been around church, maybe today for the very first time, this just makes sense. You've never realized that there is a God in heaven who already knows everything you've done wrong and loves you. 
And maybe for you, it's all been about my righteousness. If I come to church, if I give a tithe, if I do this, if I dress this way, if I don't go to these parties, if I, if I, if I, if I do well in my family, if I do well here, if I do this the right way, then God will accept me. When the truth of the matter is, God looks at you and says, I will accept you just as you are. Not because you're good, but because I'm good. Not because of anything you've done, but because the blood of my son covers all sin. And today, today, the very first response is that today is the day that you give your life to Jesus. That you repent, throwing yourself in the mercy of God, saying, if you, if you will have me, I'm yours. So with everybody's head down, everybody's eyes closed, if that's your story this morning, I want to say a prayer with you. There's nothing magic about the words. It's the cry of your heart to a merciful God. So today, if you've decided to give your life to Jesus, pray this prayer with me. Just say, dear God, I know, I know I've done things wrong. I'm painfully aware of my sin. Not just the sin that I do, but the sin that I am. But God, because of Jesus, because he died on a cross in my place, because his blood is available to cover my sin, God, forgive me. Come into my life as my Savior and my God. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.